0: Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new con gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
2: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another comps segment on our bonus episode. Remember, if you do have comp title requests, go to our website, The Shit About Writing. Go to the Ask a Question tab. There is a link there. You get one minute to record your request for a comp. Put in as much information as you can in terms of tone, the comps you think work, the comps you think don't work, etc., etc. And then, you know, we will try and answer them in the segment. Emily Summer from East City Bookshop. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I am always happy to be here, and we are always so happy to hear from you. I think you have your own fan base, Emily. I think you could start your own podcast at this point.
3: But I, I am happy to just participate in this monthly
2: segment. Yes, yeah, smart, smart. <laughs> podcasts are time consuming. Alrighty, let's kick us off with the first request. Here we go.
4: Hi, Emily. I'm seeking comps for my multi-POV upper middle grade novel. All 12-year-old Garrett Lowe wants is a friend. Too bad his only friend just moved across the country and he's starting seventh grade with bullies already on his back. With an absent father, three sisters, a new stepdad, and overworked mom, it's easy to get lost in the chaos. When Garrett's bully Ian chases him into the woods, he stumbles upon the lair of illegal animal traffickers. Garrett finds an abandoned young red panda. He sneaks the cub home, determined to secretly raise him in his bedroom. His life and the lives of those around him become threatened by the smugglers who want the panda back. This book has the adventure, charming humor, and animal rights ideals of Carl Hiaasen's middle grade novels, and the heartfelt emotion and animal companion element of Sarah Pennypacker's Pax. Though my novel is contemporary and doesn't include the panda as a POV character, these books may also be a bit too old to comp. I'm also looking for comps to the right family, friendship, and abandonment elements. Garrett's father has left the family, and he's struggling to connect with his new stepfather, but also comes to rely on his sisters for help, as well as his school crush and possibly even Ian, his worst enemy. Thank you for your help. So we have not had a children's request in
3: a while. And our first one is for an upper middle grade book. I feel like as we've continued this comps session, these special episodes, people have really gotten the hang of getting their own comps. So maybe you all will not need me very much longer because this author wisely suggests Carl Hyacin, who when we've had kid titles in the past, I have mentioned, and Sarah Pennypacker, who we are a big fan of at East City Bookshop. So I think she wonders if those are too old I think maybe and a children's agent would know better. I feel like with kids titles, maybe there's a little more leeway. And I think both of these feel like really great comps. Some others that I might consider specifically for the family angle that we're looking for here, I would look at the books of Gary D. Schmidt. Some of his are too old, but he has continued to write. So I would look through his work because he does a great job of writing very heartfelt, socially centered family and friends, middle grade novels. I love his book, The Wednesday Wars. That's probably my favorite of his. I don't know if that one's a particular comp. That one is actually has a little bit of a historical fiction angle around Vietnam. But I think somewhere in Gary Schmidt's OVRA, there might be something that works. Ditto for Dan Gemeinhart. My favorite book of his is The Remarkable Journey of Coyote Sunrise, which may not be a great comp here because that book hinges on a traumatic past event. Although this one has enough our title here has enough serious stuff, an absent father, bullies at school, loneliness that that might work, but The Remarkable Journey of Coyote Sunrise is a marvelous book. Again, lots of emotion, lots of heart and a lot a lot about building connection and Finding Friends. And finally, I will throw out the books of Rebecca Stead. And she may be too big and none of hers might be quite right. But again, I think she writes this really smart, upper middle grade, realistic fiction that could work here.
5: Thank you, Emily. Okay, here's our next one. I'm looking for comps for a literary speculative novel, The Housewife, 69,000 Words. It's written in third-person, dual POV. Suffering with untreated postpartum depression, a new mother morphs into her house, her head becoming the roof, her feet the foundation, and has to face the internal forces that led to merging if she ever wants to be human and see her family again. When her husband is unable to find her, he also discovers the house isn't the same. Cabinet doors move of their own volition, something blurry whisks across the bathroom mirror as she tries to make contact, his anxiety ramps into paranoia. Right now, Night Bitch is my closest comp for its exploration of early motherhood through speculative elements. I also comp The Push because of the overlap with struggles in motherhood, but it's not a perfect match. When Women Were Dragons also has women transforming into non-human entities, but that book has a much larger scope, whereas The Housewife is really only about a single family of three. A beta reader described my novel as a fresh take on the haunted house story. Thanks for any help you can offer. I really appreciate the comp episodes.
3: Okay. Once again, we have included great comps right out of the gate. So our caller mentions Night Bitch and The Push, which I I totally see where she's coming from with both of those. They're recent, they're big, but maybe not too big. So I think those are great. I will add The Need by Helen Phillips, which we shelve in the sci-fi and fantasy section of our bookstore, but it is for sure speculative fiction with a very literary bend. She was on, I believe, the short list of the National Book Awards a few years ago, at least the long list. I know it was nominated. And that is a book that is speculative fiction, particularly about how difficult early motherhood is and how we see ourselves as mothers and and how we deal with that. So for sure the need I will also suggest if then by Kate Hope Day who I've mentioned in the past because I think she does such a great job of writing literary fiction with just a bit of a speculative bend. So it's got the speculation in it but it also is very grounded and the tone is very literary and she also writes new motherhood and postpartum depression or the specter of it very well. Another book I thought of is a book called Housebreaking by Colleen Hubbard. And I, I thought of that for the obvious house parallels. So that I, this is not one that I have read, but I thought about it as soon as I heard this description. That is about a woman who in dealing with things decides that she's gonna physically break down her house and move it. She's gonna carve it down and physically move it as a way to deal with things. Um, so I feel like the house metaphor would work. At least it would be an interesting one to check out. And the last one I will suggest is My Murder by Katie Williams, which much like The Need and If Then is speculative literary fiction that deals greatly with a woman's identity and her sense of self and particularly the theme of motherhood. So all of those I think are worth looking at. Marvelous, Emily. Thank you. Okay, here's number
6: three. Thanks so much for offering this service. I'm looking for comps for my upmarket novel about a young woman's quest for a meaningful creative life. She's a painter and writer who resigns from a soul-crushing job in the New York City contemporary art world of the early 1980s, but struggles to escape the job's pervasive influence. Multiple POVs and forms include journal entries, case notes, a grad school thesis, and a deposition transcript. The ensemble cast includes a friend with PTSD, a songwriting lawyer, a fashionable arts patron, a closeted banker, a mysterious artist, and a wise elder. It's not a rom-com. Comps I have found include Lily King's Writers and Lovers for the Protagonist's Strong Creative Drive, Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, whose protagonists are smart, creative, and confused, Meg Walzer's The Interestings for the Fraught Camaraderie. I really appreciate your help with suggesting recent on-point comps for this book. Thank you very much. So before
3: this caller had even mentioned writers and lovers, that was the first thing that jumped to my head because whenever I hear someone who wants a book about someone who is struggling to create a meaningful creative life and what it means to survive as a creative and how do you make a living as a creative and how do you achieve your creative dreams? I immediately think about Lily King's Writers and Lovers. It is an absolutely masterful novel. It's a pleasure to read but at its core is this, it's a, a struggling novelist who is trying to balance waiting tables and writing her novel. Anybody who's listening to this podcast, I think could appreciate Writers and Lovers. So absolutely for that one. I also love Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I love the interestings. I will suggest Tuesday Nights in 1980 by Molly Prentiss, which is a few years old, but it is set in the 80s. It is about artists and creative people, and it is a multi-POV story that is very accessible and just a wonderful, really wonderful book. So I think that's a great one. And alongside Writers and Lovers, I will throw out Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. That one is less concerned with finding a way to survive as a creative person and an artist, but it is a wonderful example of a young woman's quest for balancing everything and figuring everything out and just an absolute joy to read funny substantive wonderful
2: adding those to my list right number four hi i'm
7: laura and i'm looking for comps for my memoir cabin fever my contrary quest to slow down i am a busy wife and mother of two who desperately wants to live a slower pace but my busyness and need for control gets in my way When my home is broken into, I convince my unskilled husband, Mark, to build a cabin on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. He agrees, despite our limited finances, lack of building knowledge, and differing views on how to build a cabin. Racing to beat a building deadline, my progress is stalled by forest fires, flooding rain, a builder's lean, a hailstorm that traps us in our camping trailer, marks not to code suggestions, my three parents' cancer diagnoses, and my own perfectionism and overachieving. When marital conflict escalates and I take on even more projects, I must figure out why I carry so much at the same time, who I am besides mother, wife, and daughter, and if I can stay married to the man who's built a wall between us. I currently have The Salt Path by Rainer Wynn and Lab Girl by Hope Jaron as comps for strong female leads with a deep love of the land searching for home. But Lab Girl might be too old and and... and I struggle to find other similar books that are recent and big enough, but not too big titles. If Cheryl Strayed's Wild wasn't a no for size and time since publication, I'd include it. Please help. Okay. I love the premise of
3: this. I feel like um, for Cabin Fever, I feel like I can see this in one of my upcoming catalogs. When I select books for the store, I get catalogs from publishers and I just feel like I could see this in, in my catalog. The first person that I will suggest to Laura is Mary Laura Philpot who has a collection of essays and a memoir. The first one is called I Miss You When I Blink and the second one which might be more on point here is called Bomb Shelter. And the reason I suggest Mary Laura's work is because she talks at great detail and in such a brilliant way about exercising our need for control and how we balance all of the anxieties that come with being in a family and loving each other and taking care of our children and taking care of our spouse and taking care of ourselves. It, and she's funny and they're, it's tender. Neither of these books are particularly about resettling or a house, but I feel like the tone of just a mother and a wife who is figuring things out might really work with Mary Laura's work. For one that is more directly on point about building a house. And um, moving and that aspect, I will suggest Rise by Kara Brookins, which came out in 2017, I believe. And the subtitle of Rise is How a House Built a Family. And so this one is much more related to the actual cabin part and the racing to beat the housing deadline and making all those choices while also managing a family and balancing everything. So I think that could be a good one.
2: Thank you. Okay, here's number
8: five. Hello. I would love some help with comps for my multi-POV millennial amateur sleuth mystery set in atmospheric and economically stratified Oakland, California in 2013. In this novel, an almost too conscientious psychotherapist feels compelled to investigate when her new client thinks a friend's accidental death by fire was actually murder. The therapist pulls two fellow mental health professionals into pursuing this ethically murky case alongside her. This is a fun, psycho-emotionally grounded, tightly plotted story with close friendships at its core and a hint of a will-they-won't-they romantic subplot. The book is not quite cozy, but not noir either. My current comps are the Thursday Murder Club because of the lively, collaborative amateur sleuthing and shrinking on Apple TV Plus because of the imperfect, emotionally layered therapists. I'd love to comp at least one other book and also wish that I could find something that has an even better tonal match. Although my book has humor and light moments, it's not quite as zany as my comps and doesn't go for the laugh quite as often. Thank you so, so much. For this one,
3: I love thinking about sort of comps mystery comps that are fun not exactly cozy but not the dark books that I and so many others are often drawn to because people for sure want something that is a little bit more pleasant and a little bit easier I love the comps to shrinking you know sometimes I throw out a a pop culture comp that's not a book I will with our next one actually stay tuned and I think Thursday Murder Club is excellent When I have readers who come into the store who want something like Thursday Murder Club, they want an amateur detective with a good sense of humor, maybe not not something that's zany, but something that is fun. I suggest The Maid by Nita Prose, which did very well and is very recent. So I think that one could be a great one. It's got a lot of personality, a lot of heart, and it's the housekeeper at a hotel is the detective instead of a therapist. But again, it's not not a police person. And I will also suggest the books of Lisa Lutz. So she has a series called The Spellman Files, which have a bit of a Veronica Mars lean to them. Those might be too zany, but all of hers veer toward cozy, but, but still are serious and substantive and really well-written, engaging work. So I would look and see if any of Lisa Lutz's feel right.
2: Thank you, Emily. All right, here's our next one.
9: First, thank you for all that you do for aspiring authors, and please help me find better fitting comps for my book. I'm currently writing a coming-of-age adult women's fiction novel that centers around strong female friendships. The book will appeal to readers of California Golden for its take on surf culture and the Bandit Queens for how feminist issues can heal and bond female survivors. Told through three rotating female POVs, the story takes place in Santa Cruz, California over the course of one summer. Friends since third grade, they find themselves drifting apart in their early 20s from neglect and misunderstandings, but after one of them has slipped GHB and date-raped, they come together for a summer of retribution. They make a list of every man they know that has behaved similarly. The girls begin to plot and scheme to anonymously even the score in unconventional and often hilarious ways, but when getting even goes too far and long-standing secrets are revealed, will the bonds of friendship keep them united? or will this be their final unraveling? Again, thank you for your help.
3: Okay, so this is the one where I'm gonna recommend something that is not a book, and it's probably something that our author has already thought of given the themes of revenge and female friendship, and that's Promising Young Woman, the movie that Emerald Fennell made with Carrie Mulligan in, I believe, 2020. I loved it. I highly recommend it. So I think that Promising Young Woman seems like a great comp here. Two other comps that deal with feminism, comeuppance, retribution, um, and the Me Too movement are The Work Wife by Allison B. Hart and The Comeback by Ella Berman. Both of those are set in sort of a Hollywood Me Too world, but they both deal with how women are taking control of the things that have happened to them and making sure that the people who have wronged them pay, the men who have wronged them pay. And for the theme of friendship and an enduring female friendship, I always mention Rufy Thorpe's The Girls from Corona Del Mar. I think it is probably maybe sadder and more serious than our tone here. It's and it's not about, you know, plotting and scheming, but it is definitely about a longtime female friendship and whether or not it can survive. And similarly. I would look at Vendela Vida's We Run the Tides. So my fa- one of my favorite micro genres of fiction is an adult looking back at a formative adolescent friendship. And Rufy Thorpe and Vendela Vida's are two of my favorites in this vein. So even if they're not the perfect comp, I think they're great books that everybody should look at, especially if you're writing a book about friendship. And I will say with this one too, I think that the the initial comps given, California Golden meets The Bandit Queen's, Perfect. That's, I I think I can't do any better. So I think this collar is all set.
2: Awesome, Emily. Thank you. And I love it when you mention people that we have had on the show. We've had Ella Berman on the show twice. And I meant to mention earlier, Nita Prose, for those of you considering registering for next year's Deep Dive series, Nita Prose is going to be one of our presenters at that that 10-week virtual conference. So we're super, super excited about that because Nita is not only an excellent writer, she's also an excellent editor. So you're going to be hearing from someone who's worked on both sides of the equation okay here we go number seven hi i'm becca i
10: need help with comps for my literary novel called the temple of divine indifference which is set in the aftermath of kurt Cobain's death two teens plus a nine-year-old with a pregnant goat land in a feminist punk band house in olympia washington when the teen girl is assaulted by a guy in the house the whole community must choose between their chosen family and the ethics behind their music the novel is funny but also serious and my writing leans lyrical They're strong feminist and environmental themes. And, you know, a goat. It's set in the same world as Carrie Brownstein's Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. And I've also considered Jules Omen's body grammar as well for the um, geography and general tone. But I'm just patching things together here. Where are the literary 90s music coming of age novels for adults? I just want to say thank you. And I also want to say thanks for helping me feel like publishing a novel is a normal human endeavor, not like some act of lone genius. It's really helpful.
3: Thank you. Okay, so I, if you've listened to any of these comp sessions, you know that as soon as anybody mentions music or 90s, I am completely all in. So I am all in for this book. Sign me up to read the first galley copy. I will be there. And I think it might be, instead of the music, it might be the mention of The Pregnant Goat that has me thinking about the books of Kristen Arnett. So Kristen Arnett writes these brilliant and funny and a little bit wacky coming-of-age novels for adults. So look at Kristen Arnett's and see if tonally that works or just enjoy the reads So that jumped out at me because of, because of the mention of the goat for the specific Pacific Northwest nineties music angle. I have to mention this book is way too old to comp it, but it was one of those books that was like a formative book for me as a teen. And anybody who wants to read in this vein should try to find it. I don't know if it's still in print. It's called girl by Blake Nelson. And to tell you exactly how nineties it is. It was first run as a a fiction excerpt in Sassy Magazine, like at the height of Sassy Magazine. And so then he published it as a book. And it's about a young, a teenage girl in mid-90s, Portland, Oregon, who is a very good girl and has done exactly what her parents want. And then she sort of gets into the music scene and falls for this local musician. When I was 16, it was absolutely everything to me. So anybody who is drawn to a literary novel set in the 90s music scene, check out Girl by Blake Nelson. I have reread it in recent years, and it does hold up, but maybe that's just me because I loved it for such a long time. For another very recent book that I think actually could be a comp is the very recent Wellness by Nathan Hill. So it may be too big because it is, at this moment, Oprah's current book club pick. But I just started it and it starts in not in the Pacific Northwest, but it starts in Chicago in nineteen ninety-three. And it is so Gen X and it is so you can't sell out. And it there is a cameo by Liz Fair very early in the book. It doesn't say it's Liz Fair, but anybody who's a fan of the music recognizes immediately that it's Liz Fair. So these sort of Gen X 90s music, Easter eggs, made me fall in love with wellness immediately. I hope that it continues to flash back to these 90s sections, although it follows a couple into the present day. Highly recommend. I'm really enjoying Wellness by Nathan Hill. Another book that is set in, I think it's in Oregon, not in Washington, but a book about found family and adult coming of age is Stray City by Chelsea Johnson. And it is set in the 90s. And I think it could feel right. It might have the right setting, the right Mix of funny and serious. Excellent writing. I loved Stray City by Chelsea Johnson. And then one that I know I've mentioned in the past is The People We Keep by Allison Larkin. It's again a 90s set book that this one go, is on the East Coast, but it's got a lot of music in it, not specific well known 90s artists, but it's very concerned with music and finding your found family. And it's just a, a wonderful blend of enjoyable and tender and serious and beautiful
2: sounds amazing adding it to the list right second last one here we go hi my name is Erin and my novel
10: is a psychological suspense told through a single close third point of view single mom M thinks she has the perfect job house daughter and life until her beloved 18 year old daughter runs away leaving her phone her car and a note the novel follows an angry M as she tries to figure out where her daughter went and who her daughter is while also trying to outrun her own secrets think the last thing he told me if hannah were an angry jilted mother trying to hide her own secrets from those around her while uncovering those her daughter had kept for years
3: Okay. So I love that this has a character named M in it. That is my nickname. So I'm here for for M figuring things out about her daughter. I think the mention of the last thing he told me is excellent and right on point. You all have heard me mention that one in the past. And I will also mention a recent book. It came out this year. It's called The Long Way Back by Nicole Bart. That's Bart with two A's, B-A-A-R-T. And that is a book about a mother and a daughter. The daughter goes missing and the mother is forced to figure out what did she know about her daughter? What did she not know? What has happened? I think a lot of the same mother-daughter suspense themes, and it is a suspense novel. I also thought about Karen Slaughter's pieces of her. So I think there is not anybody writing in this psychological suspense game who is better than Karen Slaughter. She is a master as far as I'm concerned and pieces of her was actually made into a mini series with Tony Collette, but that is also a mother daughter story. And this one is, it's really the daughter trying to figure out the mother's secrets and what has happened. Like, what does she know about her mother? What does she not know? But very much a mother daughter story, extremely suspenseful and as great as everything else that Karen Slaughter has ever written.
2: Thank you, Emily. Okay. Here's our last one. Hi, my name is
10: Claire Frank. I'm seeking comps for my book called Shitbirds. It's a brutal, tender, and darkly funny memoir about my year in police training. The same year, my big hearted sister Jody learns how to score and use methamphetamines. The hard hitting prose, tempered with a Jenny Lawson like irreverence, delivers a behind the scenes look at my police academy and questions whether its lessons will help or hinder as I embark on the most important rescue mission of my life attempting to save Jody. Readers will be left with a who-rescued-who story that asks them whether the one with the gun belt or the one with the meth kit did more for the other. So far, my comps are, oddly, both from Anne Patchett. One is her essay, The Wall, about her efforts to gain entry into a police academy. The second is her book, Truth and Beauty, covering the inseparable bond she had with her tragically addicted best friend. All suggestions appreciated. I love the
3: mention of Ann Patchett's Truth and Beauty for this one because I also adore that book. If people have not read it yet, I recommend it highly and I recommend it alongside Lucy Grayley's memoir, The Autobiography of a Face. Lucy Grayley is the subject of Ann Patchett's Truth and Beauty. She is the drug addict friend that Ann Patchett writes about in Truth and Beauty and her own book is absolutely stunning. Of the two of them, Lucy sort of had the more illustrious start. And she's a brilliant writer. So I recommend both of those. I love that Claire mentioned those. Another book I will mention, if not, perhaps not as a comp, but maybe as background is Francisco Cantu's memoir, The Line Becomes a River. And I thought of that one because it is his memoir of working inside of Border Patrol. So much like this work in progress is a look inside police training and the police academy and the police force, The Line Becomes a River is about working inside border patrol and what that was like. Tonally, I don't think they're right at all. The Line Becomes a River is not Jenny Lawson irreverent, but it is a, a really impactful read about the border. So I highly recommend it. And I do think as a, as a memoir about a very particular type of workplace, That would be a really interesting one to look at. I love any opportunity to mention one of my favorite books of the last five years, Liz Moore's Long Bright River. It's a novel. So again, not correct in terms of genre or tone, but it is a brilliant book about a police detective, a detective who is also a sister who is trying to save her drug addicted sister at the same time that she is taking care of her son and being a detective on the Philadelphia police force. So the themes I think might be similar and I want everybody to read it because it's just so wonderful. In terms of direct comps, because our caller mentioned Jenny Lawson, I would also suggest a look at Samantha Irby and R. Eric Thomas, because I think that those two memoirists blend the brutal and the tender and the darkly funny better than anybody else. They are just, they are so funny, but they manage to tackle really serious topics in their very funny memoirs. So I would look at Sam Irby and Eric Thomas in addition to Jenny Lawson. And I would also look at the work of Stephanie Land. So she had a memoir a few years ago called Maid, which was about her work as a maid. And she has a new one coming out on November 7th called Class, which is about being a struggling single mother who goes back to school. And I thought of Stephanie's books because they are books about the workplace and they are books about managing Um, family needs with the workplace and they blend very serious struggles with a lot of like spunk and some irreverence. She is not a Jenny Lawson laugh out loud type of writer, but there's definitely like that irreverent spark and that verve. And it's, she definitely is writing about extremely tough subjects with a lot of tenderness and a lot of heart and humor. So I think that could work too. And that's it for
2: today. Amazing. Emily, thank you again for all the work you put into coming up with these comp titles for our listeners. We really appreciate it for our listeners. Please support eCity in any way you can, whether it's online or going into the store and shopping there. Now, remember for next month's comps, we do need to record a bit ahead of time. So if you want your comp requests included in our next episode, we will need them taped by the 18th of November. So make sure that you go on and get them recorded by then. Emily, we look forward to chatting with you next month. I will see you next month.
0: Thank you, Bianca. I am very excited to introduce you to today's guest. I have Jessica Knoll with us here on the podcast, the New York Times bestselling author of The Favorite Sister and Luckiest Girl Alive. Now a major motion picture from Netflix. She has been a senior editor at Cosmopolitan and the articles editor at Self. She grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and graduated from the Shipley School in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and from Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their bulldog, Franklin. Bright Young Women, her latest novel debuted straight onto the New York Times bestseller list. I'm so excited to talk to you. I like hunted down your publicist um, after getting a galley back in the spring. And I was like, I have to get Jessica on the podcast. There's so much to talk about on our show. We talk a lot about the opening pages. So on our show, we critique the first five pages for a lot of querying authors. We're looking for representation. We're always talking about the opening pages. And I feel like your opening sections, I guess we can call it like they're such a masterclass in storytelling. So I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive into those and kind of pick your brain as a storyteller her and talk about some of the choices you made. But first, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about Bright Young Women, the book?
11: Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that, by the way, because I really do, I, I really care so much about those opening pages and I spend a lot of time on them. It feels good to hear someone say that. I'm Jessica Noll. I'm the author of the novels, Luckiest Girl Alive, The Favorite Sister, and now Bright Young Women, which came out on September 19th. Bright Young Women is a fictional reimagining of the crimes of one of America's most famous serial killers. I don't name him in the novel. And part of that is because I wanted to tell this story from the perspectives of the people that we don't normally get to hear from. And in this case, it was the women who were victimized by him. So it's all kind of based on real life events, but also just kind of a imagining a rendering of what it would have been like to be a young woman at the time of these crimes, just centering their stories and their experiences.
0: Well, thank you. And it debuted on the New York Times list. So obviously it did did its job. It was a big hit. So congratulations for that. Thank you. All right. So my first question for you about kind of the opening section is on our podcast, we argue a lot about prologues. Are we pro prologues? Are we against them? When do they work? Why do they work? How do they work?
11: So could you tell us, are you a pro prologue person? I'm neutral. I'm the Switzerland of prologues, I guess. I think if they're done well, great. I don't necessarily need them either. Personally, I I think in the way I tell stories, I tend to gravitate toward a prologue-esque type of teaser. I think in all my novels, I have some version of that. I don't have a version of my books yet where we just kind of like go right into it. Actually, that's why I'm thinking about it. My My new book that I'm working on, I do kind of just get to it. I think just getting to it is also a skill and is also something that like, there are plenty of novels where I'm like, great, we're off to the races. I love it. So I think it's really like a case by case basis for the type of story you're telling, who the character is and, and the type of writer you are.
0: Absolutely. So in yours, we kind of open, I don't think you actually say whether it's present day specifically, but it's like more contemporary. We start with our protagonist and then we go back in time and then we kind of make our way through the novel. So for the purposes of talking about it as an opener, as I said, I got the galley in the spring and then I also listened to it in audio because I wanted the the dual experience of like what works in print and what works in audio and both experiences, which I thought was so masterful, which is why I kind of want to talk about it, was the the way that you were kind of able to slow things down, really slow things down, because there are times when you are talking about the women as they're getting ready in the present, but then you're also talking about the fact that in however many hours, some of them might not be living anymore. And so you're really teaching us as the reader to capture the moment, stay in the moment, also kind of look for clues because we're thinking like, what's going to happen to these women? Why are some of them not going to live? And I just wanted you to talk maybe me about those stylistic choices and, and how you were able to really like slow time down.
11: Yeah. I think for me, the thing that always draws me to a story is the gap between the normalcy of our everyday reality and our, the kind of quotidian way of life this it's cold out so we need to like turn up the heat but some girls get hot and some girls need to open the window and just like those just like little everyday details about life the disconnect between that and a kind of unspeakable unimaginable alteration in your life that violence can cause and has caused I've experienced it in my own life To me, it continues to be the most difficult thing that I reconcile with as a human being and as a storyteller. So I'm always looking for ways to really drive home just how jarring violence can be in your life and to really make people feel and believe in the promise of what your life was going to be without that episode. And so any way that I can like kind of tangle those two elements in my storytelling, I always do, whether it's like looking into the future about what's going to happen or living in the present with these memories of things that you still can't even process decades later.
0: And talk to me a little bit about the violence in terms of wanting what you wanted to put on the page. Did you grapple with how much violence to have on the page versus what to be off camera or off screen or off the page? How did you decide?
11: With what is on the page in the final copy, it's very close to what was there in even the earliest drafts. I think in any story I tell where there is going to be violence, I kind of always err on the side of showing it for what it is. And my intention is not to be gratuitous. My intention is always that as a survivor of violence myself, there is this part of me that always wants people to have to bear witness to what that violence was, because it's one of those things that I think we're so uncomfortable with engaging with the pain of survivors that it's very easy to look away. So I think I have this Instinct that I'll probably have for a long time as a writer, which is to be really kind of brutally honest about what that experience is like. But in doing that, I'm also coupling it with a much more kind of like holistic view of the character and who they are so that they're never defined by that moment of violence, that you're always shown that there is so much more to this person than this event that happened to them. So I think those are kind of like the dueling things that you're not defined by the violence, but also not shying away from what the violence is. That's kind of like a hallmark of my writing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you choose to name things, like that gives it power. You know what I mean? When you can like dance around the violence or kind of use flowery language to talk about it, but not call blood, blood, or not to call like a hammer, a hammer, or whatever the thing is, right? Like, I think like there's a... There's a section that I kind of had highlighted and you were talking about them getting ready and then you were talking about the room and then something about that there's going to be, they're going to be getting molars out of the carpet. You know, it's like you name molars, right? It's not like dancing around the language of it. I just really liked how there's there's so much power in naming what Mm -hmm. it is. Okay, so now I wanted to move on to a couple other topics. One of the things you've talked about it a lot in a lot of different ways. So I guess I'm more curious if there's anything you kind of want to add to this conversation that you've been kind of having over the years. But if anybody isn't familiar, you wrote a New York Times opinion piece about ambition back in 2018. And it was entitled, I want to be rich, and I'm not sorry. And I remember like being on Twitter the day that it came out. And it was one of those like, classic Twitter things where it's like everybody's on Twitter back then and everybody sharing it and talking about it and I think the reason I want to kind of bring it up again is I think whether you're in publishing on the publishing side or the author side there's so much pressure either directly or indirectly just to be told to be like shut up and say thank you you know like take the deal or keep you know have the job just be quiet right and and just be thankful but you always talk about ambition in such like a nuanced and interesting and direct way and i i feel like that article is also just timeless and so we have a lot of ambitious writers who listen to our show we're aspiring writers and published writers and do you have anything else that maybe you haven't said about ambition or how has your has your opinion changed
11: yeah, I mean, I still thank you for calling it timeless because it's still a piece and a mode of thinking that I still stand by. Of course, it's probably been about five years since I wrote that piece. So a lot has changed in my career. I know more now than I did in 2018. I think the biggest thing that I still come away with from the reception of that piece is that there were still people who were saying, And writers that I respect that, you know, that's all well and good to, you know, want to be successful at what you do and make money. But like, I also just happen to like really love writing. Like I respect the craft of it. It's, it's something I'm passionate about. And to me, that was so surprising because I was like, but that's, What I'm saying is that I felt for a long time, you had to either decide, do you want to be a commercial kind of writer and write books that like a lot of people with your your aim to be something that like a lot of people are going to want to read it? Or are you the type of writer where you're writing something that's quieter and a little more esoteric and That there was a level of respect that we had for the quieter writer than we did for the one who was, who was like, I see that people are reading this type of book and I want to write a book that gets read a lot. And I'm saying that there is like a bridge between those two worlds where you can love what you do, be passionate about your writing and the types of stories you're, you're telling, but also want people to read your work and like your work and and buy the the thing that you're the product that you're putting out there into the world. And I think I still remain amazed that people can't can't see that like you can have both those things, that both of those things can be true. In terms of like what I see differently now, I mean, I do see that for a long time there are a lot of male writers who I love. I read all their books and I consider them to be kind of masters of their craft and they're making a lot of money at what they do. And I just still think that we have a hard time with allowing women to be both those things. I still think that that is a struggle for female writers.
0: Absolutely. I would agree with that as well. So we come away with the same, same sentiment. So the next thing I wanted to bridge over to was talking a little bit about the internet and social media. And basically I'm curious about, your relationship to the internet as like a human being, like, do you like being on the internet? Do you need breaks? Do you like being on social media? Because for me, and I followed you for a long time, one of my favorite things is when you were filming Lucky Scroll Alive in Toronto, and you were like taking us, you know, on set every day and showing us yeah. what was going on. And you did such a good job of kind of pulling back the curtain in terms of your writerly life and what was going on. So I'm so curious about how you view the internet as a tool and, and how you use it as an author.
11: My relationship with social media is that I like Instagram and Instagram is my main mode of kind of communication (laughs) with uh, readers and friends because it just feels easy to me. TikTok as an observer, I love. I don't want to say that maybe it's like a generational thing or like, but I think it is like, I think I'm a little too old for TikTok to feel natural to me. I participate, I put out videos, I have someone who helps me with it, but it just doesn't feel as like off the cuff and natural to me as Instagram. I had to delete Twitter a couple of years ago because I was using it for all the wrong reasons. I was really using it as a way to tell me how to think and feel about everything that was going on in our world. Like, okay, who's the bad guy in this situation? What is Twitter saying? And rather than doing my own due diligence and making up my mind for myself. So that was kind of infringing on my ability to just be in touch with like my own voice and my own opinions about things. So that had to go. Instagram, for me in terms of like a promotional tool it is great it definitely is i still i am not the type of writer who is going to be able to sell a lot of books from her instagram there are some writers who can do that but not many honestly i think that social media is important not for this idea of like how many followers do you have and how many people can you reach I think it's important for things like what you do, you know, like if I was a new writer, or if I was rent- wanting to get a book deal and I didn't know where to spar- start, that's the function of social media to me is that you discover people like you who are like pulling back the curtain on things. And I think you can find your people and like pick up what you need and find your community. Like I've connected with so many other writers through social media, but in terms of like it moving the needle on sales, like No, I don't think that social media is really that tool for the majority of writers. But in terms of like learning about the industry and connecting with people and sharing war stories and all of that, I think it's a very important tool. And that's its function to me and what I would think that people should use it for.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot to be said about the conversion between followers and sales and that pipeline, depending on the genre you're working in. To me, it's just a lot about visibility, right? It's like just showing up for yourself, taking yourself seriously as a creator, as an author and putting the work in and the time in just to be
11: there. Supporting your community and then getting that support back. I think that it's also very important for that. And your point about genre is true. I'm also speaking from like more of like adult fiction kind of overall, but like, I don't really know what I speak when it comes to like YA or fantasy. That's like a whole different, that's a whole different animal. So what I'm saying doesn't apply to that genre of authors and books.
0: You're saying you can't speak for everybody all the time, Jessica? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> imagine that yes. um okay so now i want to talk about some adaptations you've obviously gone through the process of adapting your own work you've spoken a lot about wanting to be in the driver's seat to you know whatever capacity you can in learning the script writing process and everything for for your project so i want you to maybe talk to the audience a little bit about the choices that you made why you wanted to kind of keep things close to you and what did you want to let go of versus what did you want to keep close and how those adaptations um, have been developing?
11: Yeah, I think the context of where I was at in the world and where the world was at when I published my first book, Luckiest Girl Alive in 2015 is really important to this conversation, which is like, I idolized Gillian Flynn. I mean, I still do. But that to me was the person I was looking to as an example of the possibilities of being a writer. Gone Girl had come out. I mean, I literally say this as I'm looking at my copy of Gone Girl on my desk right in front of me. It's I always have one of her novels on my desk when I'm working and I'll flip to it and it'll give me inspiration if I'm in like a bit of a slump creative wise. But Gone Girl had come out in about 2012 and It was obviously the phenomenon that it was. And then the movie rights were sold and she was a big part of that. And her, she said, like, I won't make this deal unless I get to be the one to adapt it. And then by 2015, I think the movie had come out and she had written it and worked and had this amazing working relationship with David Fincher. And so when my book was coming out and there was talk of optioning it, I was like, I want what she has done. And she has set this kind of example of how high I'm aiming and so I couldn't envision a world where luckiest girl alive moved through the adaptation and development process and I wasn't a part of it like that made me feel crazy because the story was so personal the character was so personal and so it was a lot of like refusing to kind of give up my stake in that story and my story and also just the belief that like, if I could write a book, which was so, which is such a difficult thing to do, like I knew I could figure out how to write a screenplay, especially with trusted producers at my side. And that very much turned out to be the case. And now I'm involved as a producer and writer on all the adaptations of all the things I write. I think that maybe at some point in my life, if God willing, I'm so lucky to have like multiple things going, I think I would then have to make a decision of like, I'd have to step off this project, because you can't do everything at once. Right now, things are in motion at different stages of things. So I kind of cycle through, like I'm working on this adaptation. Now I have to go back to like writing my novel, you know, and I just kind of like work on things in batches as everything moves through the development phase. But I love being a part of it. Like I, and some authors don't, but to me, it's like, it's so exciting to get to stay with your stories and your characters through like, another kind of iteration of them. Like there's nothing, I'm not ready to like give them up (laughs) when the novel comes out. So this gives me the opportunity to kind of stay with them a little bit longer. Absolutely. Do you feel like that has slowed down your book writing process by having to wear both hats? I think so. I think everything gets slowed down one way or another, whether that is you could argue it on the other side where like I have scripts that maybe like would have gone sooner or like maybe something could have happened with them if I wasn't working on the book. So it's about kind of prioritizing where I think there's the momentum where I'm feeling inspired and like wanting to work on things and feeling like I have people who are championing me. Like there's some projects that you can kind of tell like, oh, people have kind of lost steam with this one. So I'm going to like, just let that breathe for a minute and turn my focus here because this group of people who's behind this project is like really excited about it. So I try not to take on too much because I have made that error in the past, which has 100% slowed me down and made me enjoy the creative process less. I'm learning and I have learned to be smarter with my energy and with my own kind of available resources. So then I'm working on things that I'm excited about. And I think that that ultimately ends up showing in the finished project that you were excited about this. And I think it just, it makes for a more exciting experience for the reader or the viewer.
0: Absolutely. You sound like you're in a very healthy place. I'm like, I need the name of your <laughs> therapist. You are in
11: a very, very I have a good place. very good therapist. Yes. <laughs> well,
0: congratulations on Bright Young Women. We at the podcast are so happy for you and uh, just love the book. So congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much. rosettastone.com slash today that's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your
2: life redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today are you looking for beta readers some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please, spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a freelance journalist who has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Ringer, Backyard Poultry Magazine, and many others. She's a former Midwesterner turned New Yorker who now lives in Portland, Oregon. She keeps eight chickens in her suburban yard and hopes to add more. It's my pleasure to welcome Tova Danovich. Tova, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bianca. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to speak to you because this book is so different in all the best ways. And, you know, it's actually the kind of book I look at it and I look at the current market and I think it is miraculous that a book like this got published. And I'm going to say this for a few reasons. One, for our listeners, I just want to give you a bit of context here. This awesome, awesome book is called Under the Henfluence. And then the byline is Inside the World of Backyard Chickens and the People Who Love Them. Now, when it comes to genre here, we've got something that is straddling two very difficult genres to sell. So it says an immersive blend of chicken keeping memoir and animal welfare reporting by a journalist who accidentally became obsessed with her own flock. So, you know, we're saying on the podcast how difficult it is to publish memoir, how difficult it is to sort of publish nonfiction. And you've taken these two together. And not only is this an incredible book, it was nominated for Indies Introduce. And for our listeners, Indies Introduce is huge because you've got the Booksellers Association of America who look at certain debuts and they take their favorite ones. It's just a handful. And they say, these are our favorite debuts that are coming out and we're really going to highlight them. So not only did Tova have this awesome book published, she had it chosen by people who we love, these booksellers who have highlighted it. So Tova, please take us through this journey to publication. Yeah, it it was a journey. I think I
12: started working on the book or thinking about it maybe five years ago now, about the time that I first got Chickens. Being a journalist, I love researching anything that I'm really excited about. And so, of course, I was going to my local library and taking out every single book on chickens that they had. And as I was reading these and, and getting to know my flock a little bit better, I started feeling like I really wanted a book that just didn't exist. There were some books out there that looked at chickens and kind of their history as like a food animal in agriculture. There were other books out there that were just, you know, people talking about how much they liked their flock of chickens and, and that's it. And plenty of DIY books, of course, on like specifically how to raise chickens. But there wasn't really anything that brought that informational side together with just the delight that I was finding that I took in raising these animals. And as I joined a lot of, you know, backyard poultry groups on social media and started an Instagram for my chickens, I found that I, I was really not alone in being delighted and obsessed by these animals. And yet there wasn't anything that took all of those things and put it together. So essentially, I was like, I guess I have to write it if I want to (laughs) read this book. And so it took me about a year and a half to work on the proposal and finish that. I'm, I'm a very slow proposal writer. And from there, it sold in 2020, which felt like Not a great time to research a book about chickens, but maybe a really good time to sell a book about chickens, because as everyone was stuck at home, a lot of people were getting into raising backyard chickens, and it was kind of having a little bit of a a moment and resurgence in in media again, pretty much all over the world.
2: Yeah, it is incredible how important timing and luck with timing can be with certain things. As well, I lately on Instagram my favorite accounts are the ones that are showing and it, it's poultry dancing they've, <laughs> they've, they've got the little camera and the poultry's dancing around the camera and they put it to different music and I don't know what I can't even say what kind of chickens they are or whatever but it is hilarious the way they they, they managed to do that and so okay so back from from my Instagram ramblings in terms of their proposal So was it a case of, Tova, you're a journalist, so you just knew how the hell to write a proposal? Or was it a case of, you were like, okay, this is the kind of book I want to write. And I now, on top of all of that, have to figure out how to write a proposal for this book that I'm wanting to write. What did that process look like? Because I know you say you were a slow proposal writer, but I mean, that must have been quite difficult to get across in a proposal to a publisher this thing that you were doing that really doesn't have any comps. Because we always say comp your titles, comp your titles. But when you're doing something that doesn't really have any other comps and you're the first person to do something like that, that's surely got to make the proposal that much more difficult. Yeah, that is very true.
12: So one fun thing about being a freelance journalist for like over a decade now is that at some point, I think maybe seven or so years ago, I wrote something and an agent reached out to me because of the piece that I had written, asking if, you know, I, I had an idea for a book. And I did at the time, we worked on a proposal together that went out on submission and did not ultimately sell. But I did already have a contact that I knew, you know, I could go to her and say, I'm thinking about writing a book about chickens. And so that was really helpful. And I know on this podcast, people talk so much about the querying process and how just fraught that can be, um, which I was really glad to skip that. On the other hand, I also wouldn't recommend doing journalism for 10 years just to not have to query agents. I think between the two, you know, a couple years of, of sending emails sounds a lot easier than making this your entire career. But I did have that in my back pocket. And because I had already gone through the proposal process once, I did kind of know generally what the format was. I was lucky enough to, to have other writers that I could reach out to and say, I know you have a nonfiction book, can you show me what your proposal looked like? And seeing the ways in which people stuck to the format and also veered away from the format was really helpful because in nonfiction, the book proposal is extremely formulaic and you have to have all of these specific things in place. One of the things that was the most challenging for me with that was actually the chapter outlines that you have to do for nonfiction because typically... It takes a lot of research, you want to have a publisher kind of upfront, and hopefully that advance to help you (laughs) pay for the time and travel and, and all the things that it takes to do nonfiction well. And so you have to essentially know what the entire book is going to be like before you have written it, before you have sold it. And so going through and figuring out what is the structure for the book going to be? Like, what kind of journey do I want to take the readers on with this was probably the thing that took the most time. And as to your question with with comp titles, honestly, I, I think after listening to this podcast for a long time, I probably could have chosen better ones. And since my book came out, there has been this real moment actually of especially with animal writing of having people that blend memoir with that. One of my favorite books, Fox and I by Catherine Raven does a version of that. Sabrina Imbler's How Far the Light Reaches, Erica Berry's Woolfish. It's really having a moment where people are mixing those two together. And it's You know, a a subgenre, I suppose, that I'm a really big fan of. So if I were writing this book again today or trying to sell it, I would have a lot of comps that I could pick from that would probably be a lot easier than I did, you know, three years ago.
2: Yeah, that's what happens when you're a forerunner, right? You've got to do all the hard work for everybody else. You've got to blaze the trail and then it becomes a bit easier as those other books come out. So so what were the comps that you chose for this? And also, before we get into some of the other questions I have about the proposal, so once you did the proposal, you then queried agents or you went directly to a publisher? What did that look like?
12: I already had my agent, so we did a couple rounds back and forth on the proposal, and then from there we went out on submission to publishers. Some of the comps I had, there was a book, How to Speak Chicken, that had come out that was quite popular. It is very different. I'm not sure that knowing what I know about comps now that I, I would have chosen that with this knowledge because... It's really more of like a gift book than a fully researched nonfiction. I had Andrew Lawler's How Did the Chicken Cross the World, which is one of those books that takes a pretty sweeping historical view of the chicken. And then I believe I used one of Cy Montgomery's books as well. And she's she's a favorite of mine. But there really weren't any books that did, did exactly what I was trying to do. I think H is for Hawk would have been a good comp, but at the time it had been out for a little bit too long. So yeah, that was an area that I really struggled with.
2: So what you said before, in terms of looking at examples that other writers had done of their proposals. So how willing are other writers to share this? How proprietary is this information? You know, I would say, are they guarding these things fiercely? Are they happy to share? Are they online resources? Because if I was writing this kind of book, honestly, I wouldn't even know where to begin when it comes to a proposal. And I kind of feel like I'd rather just write the whole damn thing myself before actually writing the proposal because writing the proposal sounds really stressful, especially for a pantser who doesn't want to know the whole damn thing up front. So, for our listeners who are looking for these kinds of resources, what do you recommend? This is one reason that I think having community
12: in writing is just so hugely valuable. I mean, it is a solitary pursuit, but when you do the solitary work with other people, just everything feels a lot better. So I had a college professor who actually I was able to turn to because he had a book that he had written and asked him if he would be willing to share and if he knew any other people who had proposals that they might be Willing to send along too, and I think people are pretty generous, especially in journalism. I find I live in Portland, Oregon, and and there are a number of you know monthly like meet up, and we all have a drink together, and we share editor information and and things like that. And I think there's really this feeling that what goes around kind of comes around and that by helping other people, you know, eventually you are going to need an editor contact or you're going to be wondering who's someone at this health authority who can be really helpful to me in, in writing this piece. So people tend to be really generous with their time and resources. And that is one, one reason that I I highly, highly recommend trying to find something like that in whatever genre you are working in, because It only ever makes everyone feel better. But there are some resources. I know Study Hall... Did have some nonfiction proposals that people had uploaded to their site. You have to be a member in order to join, but especially if you know you're doing this for a year or something, that can be a really great use of money, especially when you're you're starting out and you maybe don't know how to make those friends in your industry. So there are things like that that are out there, and I find that people are very willing to share, obviously, you have to ask nicely. You're not sharing in order to spread it all over the internet. But especially with a book that's already out, I think there's no feeling like you're going to somehow be scooped if you show this book to other people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And writers, that's true for the writing industry in general. You don't know when you might need a blurb from another writer. You don't know when you might need something from someone else. And again, we always say practice good literary citizenship, help other writers as much as you can along the way. Sometimes it pays off and it comes back to you. That's great. But maybe, you know, just help for the sake of helping. So I'm on with Tova there 100%. Something I want to chat about, Tova, is in this book, how absolutely delightfully your voice came through. I was expecting because it was like You know, sort of journalism, besides the memoir, that we were going to have a much more dry book. And I just want to read for our listeners here. There's these parts that are actually so hilarious. And you do a lot of footnotes, which I love as well. I know some people aren't big on footnotes, but I go down to the footnotes. So I just want to find the part here where it goes All right, I think it's on page 28. There's a section in which they are busy. So it goes, Chicken sexing is not easy and can only be done on hatch day while the vent is still pliable. Right. So now this is when they're trying to figure out whether the chickens, you know, male or female. And it's really, really difficult. It says, Roberta picks up a chick to give me another chance to play spot the papilla, the proper name for a rooster's sex organ. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. Tova. did I? Yeah. Good job. There we go. Spot the (laughs) papilla. See, trust me to be able to pronounce sex organs. Right. And it goes through this whole thing and then you have this delightful little moment and then you give us, until the 1930s, the only way to tell the sex of a chicken was to wait and see if they crowed or laid an egg. That all changed when Japan's Zen Nippon chick sexing school began offering two-year courses in the art of sexing, training over 1,400 people by 1934. And then we have these footnotes. And then to the footnotes it goes, here we go. Fun fact, a hen who isn't all that fond of the rooster who has just mounted her can rid herself of most of his genetic material and only hatch chicks from a more desirable sire. And then there's another footnote that's below that. It says, you may or may not want to bring any of this up as an icebreaker on your next date. Well, I actually spat out my coffee when I read that part. So so let's talk about the balancing of this delightful sense of humor in between all of these facts and figures that you're giving us. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that
12: you enjoyed my my humor. Humor is always so hard to write. I think, you know, one of the reasons that it came across so much is that I just truly was very delighted by them. For better or worse, I do find that this weird little hybrid of, you know, journalism and memoir is something that feels very comfortable to me. I think one of the things that makes me so excited about writing, especially in nonfiction, is always getting to share information with people and that sense of wonder. And I think that to have wonder on the page, you really have to have that personal story in there too. It's it's hard to convey that without people being involved and so I was kind of the stand-in for the reader going through the the book and the process of you know learning and being delighted by by the chickens and sometimes really sad about things that happen to them as well so the book has has a bit of an emotional roller coaster sometimes and so you know when I'm writing the parts that are exciting a lot of what delights me and what makes it exciting are those facts so it only seems natural to fit those those in there. A lot of writing teachers have some version of telling students to notice that you're noticing something, that these things that really stick out to you that make you wonder, you know, why is this going on? Or a detail that sticks in your head that you can't stop thinking about or want to tell all your friends about. Those are kind of the glimmers of story or the details that you want to put in your writing. And so as I was researching the book, that was something that I really thought about, were what are these moments that stand out to me, because in all likelihood, they're going to stand out to readers as well.
2: Yeah, very much. So. And and something that I wasn't expecting. I mean, there was even a bit of the grumpy sunshine romance trope in the book as well between between you and your husband, because, you know, you show you being so excited and jumping around and you know, in the middle of the night or waking up and being like, these things are happening. And your husband's like, could you keep quiet? I'm trying to sleep kind of thing. And and that's something I wasn't expecting either. Yeah, I think
12: one of the funny things about memoir, you know, it's all true, but I think you're always writing like a character of yourself and a character of other people. And a a friend of mine described Lyle in the book as like the straight man to my, my chicken craziness, which was true. I mean, all those moments really happened the way that they happened. It was that every single day. No, but those were the things that really stuck out to me. And of course, I remembered and then made their way into the book eventually.
2: I love what you've just said about you should be seeing yourself as a character in your own memoir, because it does make it easier to fix structure and go, this isn't working on a scene level with this character, as opposed to, oh, my life was not working on a scene level in this particular instance. And, you know, for our listeners, for those of you who ever get to critique memoir as well, you know, if you're in a right group and someone's writing something that's true my advice to you when you offer critique as opposed to saying to the writer what you did in this particular scene didn't make sense to me it kind of bothered me or I didn't believe what you did is saying the plausibility here when it came to the character or I wasn't able to connect with the character so that if you're able to create that bit of emotional distance between the memoirist and their writing so that they don't feel like it's their behavior that's being critiqued as opposed to you know how it's being framed within that particular scene that is the problem. I think that you know goes a long way to to helping with that as well. Tova, something that I want to ask about is balancing all the facts balancing all the research that you did because there's a lot in here I'm a recovered vegetarian I've tried vegetarianism like three or four times in my life I think the longest I managed it for was was 3 years and so you know there's a lot in here that made me immediately say to my husband I need to go back to being not only a vegetarian I need to go back to being a vegan so there's a lot here that's pretty heavy and that readers really make readers think um because we you know, we just find this chicken on our plate. We find this egg on our plate and we don't think about everything that's gone into it. And you really break that down in a in a way that's accessible to the reader, but really shows enormous, enormous empathy for the animal as well. And didn't make me feel as an animal eater judged. It made me want to be better and do better. So that's a, a balancing act as well. So when you were sitting working out the proposal, were you going, you know, one chapter facts, one chapter warm and fuzzy with my chickens, or I'm gonna try and blend the two together. Did you have a very clear vision of that up front, or was that something that became a braided kind of approach as you were actually sitting down to write? I did have
12: a pretty good idea of it up front, and I think it helped that from the beginning, I both knew, you know, I'm writing this book for a person who, like me, wants this book that doesn't exist. And also I knew the journey that I wanted to take the reader on. I think in nonfiction, we don't really talk about structure or plot points as much as we probably should because I think the the basics of storytelling are still there regardless and it was something that I was very aware of both in the individual chapters that they had to exist as kind of a standalone story and that in the overall narrative each of the chapters was playing a role to get people closer to understanding the chickens. So the book is divided into three parts. And the first is kind of mostly focused on myself and my experience of Getting to know these chickens, getting to love them, which is really helpful because I, like probably a lot of readers, started as a chicken novice. So as I am learning who who these animals are, you know, the reader gets to learn along with me. And then we move out into different things that chickens are doing in the world, like poultry shows and being therapy chickens. And that lets people see a different side of them. And from there, the last third looks at who are chickens as a species, you know, what what has our breeding of them done to the chicken? Like what ways in which our treatment of them is good or is kind of denying their their natural behaviors? Because I knew these these are animals that most most people don't really care very much about or think very much about. So I had to bring the reader along in such a way that they would learn to care. And if you look, you know, there is... a a death that was really like difficult for me emotionally. And that comes about a little before a third in the book. And if you were to look at like plotting everything out in a structure, that is essentially where that type of thing would hit if you look at fiction as well. So that was something that I was extremely aware of, because I knew it wasn't just a factual journey, but an emotional journey. And that really helped kind of rein in my desire to just put every single thing that has ever happened with with chickens in there too. I mean, I love research, so I had a lot that did not make it into the book and and fun facts that did not serve the narrative that I was trying to tell or, you know, the story that was happening in that particular scene. And that made it a lot easier to kind of keep focused as I was writing, which I think is is really important.
2: Yeah, in terms of, you know, the part you just referred to, that hit me hard. And then reading about chicken grief, it was like, oh my God, it's like, you know, you've got you as the human feeling grief for this animal and then and then the other chickens feeling grief for this animal and I was not prepared for that. But in terms of the structure, it's so true what you've said. And and for our listeners who are writing memoir things like this, always think of story structure. You know, what is the inciting incident? What is the key event that leads you into act two that is the point of no return? Why the person can't just get back into bed and go, nah, not today. And we've got our inciting incident when Tova gets the chickens and then we've got this chicken's death that is like kind of, the key event that pushes us into act two, as it were, this love for this chicken has grown and we see Toba grieving this chicken who her dog killed. And, you know, so one, we did not see it coming in terms of, you know, a plot point, because we see the dog interacting with the chicken and everything's fine. And suddenly this happens. And so, you know, in terms of story structure, it is surprising to the reader. We're thrust into act two, etc. So always think about story structure, plotting, pacing you know, story elements when you are deciding how to structure your memoir or your nonfiction. Our time is almost Tova. but before we go, do you have any advice for people who are working in the genre? Any advice? Because we've got a ton of memoirists who listen to the podcast, and I think they're often quite you know disheartened by hearing that there isn't a great market for for memoirs especially if you're not prince harry so so what is your advice for them yeah if you can't be prince harry it is a lot more
12: difficult You know, I think the thing that's really important is obviously not every book is going to be like the best selling number one New York Times memoir kind of situation. But if you have a really good idea of your audience and who the story is for the story that you are telling, I think that there are readers out there who will be really, really touched and affected to have something that speaks to them so much. And that is really what you have to keep in mind. And it's difficult, of course, because writing is both, you know, an art, a passion and also a business. And sometimes it's nice to just get a paycheck. But it is good to think about the fact that your book can find a home, even if it's with a small but really passionate group of readers. And that is definitely what I've found with Under the Henfluence, which has been out for a little while now. And I still get reader emails like, every week just about and new reviews and people are still finding it and sharing it with their friends. And I think that if that is what you are aiming for and hoping for, you can still have a really successful memoir. It's just that there are different versions of what success looks like.
2: I love that. And can I just say that I read a ton of books and I gift a ton of books because I I really believe in giving books as gifts. This book I have now bought for three different friends, one in the UK, one in Ontario, um, and one in South Africa, who all I know would absolutely love this book because of their love of backyard chickens. And, you know, that's not true of other books. I'll read a thriller and go, oh, my friends will like the thriller. I don't go and gift it to them. But this is such a particular book that I know they will absolutely love. And so this kind of book is going to find its audience. And yeah, I I absolutely loved it. We are going to link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Tova, it's been such a joy chatting with you and, and thank you so, so much for taking the time.
12: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I listened to it all the time when I was in that in-between stage of I had finished the book, but it hadn't come out yet. And I just obsessively listened. So I'm so glad to be, be on.
2: Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest was named the world's best drinks journalist, has also won four James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards. She's the best-selling author of Red, White and Drunk All Over and hosts the New York Times recommended podcast Unreserved Wine Talk. She lives in Ottawa and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Natalie McLean. Natalie, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here with you, Bianca, and I absolutely
6: love your podcast. You're doing good work. So, thank you for what you give to the literary
2: community. Well, thank you so much for that. Much appreciated. So, for our listeners, we are chatting today about Natalie's memoir, which is called Wine Witch on Fire Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, <laughs> and Drinking Too Much. Holy heck when we talk about a hook it's all there in the title man it's it's all there so so before we dive into that cuz i have a lot of questions about the witch theme etc cetera, etc cetera, but something that i was really fascinated by is at the end of Natalie's memoir, we have something called Post Morticia. And I'm going to read this to you because we hear so often on the podcast from memoirists who say what kind of place you should write from when you're writing your memoir. And I feel like memoirists get dictated to a lot in terms of where they should be emotionally, etc., etc., when they write, there are reasons for writing. Whereas, for novelists, you know, we have many different reasons for writing. I, for example, write from a place of absolute rage, and that's fine. No one bats an eyelid because it's fiction, but here we go. Let's let's go through this. So Natalie writes, I didn't want to share the story. I couldn't even look at notes I'd locked away for years. It was too exposing, too shameful. I'd be vandalizing my own privacy. Memoirist Glennon Doyle advised, Write from a scar, not an open wound. But why even write about it after the healing is done? Poet Sean Thomas Doherty had the answer. Why bother? Because right now there is someone out there with a wound in the exact shape of your words. My memoir gathered different parts of my life that I thought were separate, but were just two sides of an open wound. Words were my suitors to sew my life back together. The scars they created are now patterns of meaning that are stronger than the flesh before the injury. Right, so just bouncing off of that, Natalie, I know you're writing from a place now, I think 11 years in the future after most of this happened, but there is a simmering, bubbling anger under all of these words, and I was here for it. I was totally here for it, because if this had happened to me... I would be furious and I would want to write from that place. So can you take us through this a bit? Tell our listeners why you wrote this memoir and and the place you wrote it from. Sure. So as
6: you've just read, I, I really could
2: not even contemplate
6: writing this story for a number of years. And then eventually the story ricocheted around in my head so long that I had to get it out on paper, at least as a private exercise in making sense of what had happened. And then- Over more years, because this happened a decade ago. But I do think the themes, the feelings, the issues are more relevant today than they were back then. So, over the years, you know, I was hearing more and more stories from women in the wine industry, but also from women friends in other industries, you know, tech, sport, finance. And the stories were so similar. The specifics, of course, were different, but the themes, the feelings, they were just so, so similar. So, I thought, well, you know, Maybe if I share this story, I know the cliche for memoir writers is someone will feel less alone, but there's a reality to that in that with memoir, I think when we read a memoir that moves us, we're reading, of course, about somebody else's stories, but they're putting into words our own feelings. And we're looking for a piece of ourselves in their story and through the safety of their story. I think that can be healing when we read how they can come out on the other end. So, you know, another old adage, it's, it's not what happened to you. It's what you did with it. I think that's core to a memoir. So, you know, the specifics of my story, an online mobbing, a, a divorce after 20 years, being kind sort of blindsided by both. Everyone else's situation is probably not going to be anywhere near or close to that. But the feelings that can arise from you know, longing for love or loss or loneliness or fear of the future. That's the power of a good memoir, putting those feelings into words through someone else's story and being able to read that. So that's why I did it. I mean, so in a sense, yes, so that someone out there would feel less alone, but also so that I could connect with others and I myself could feel less alone. Because I think as writers, that's what we do. That's how we connect with the world and with others.
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's a reason to sit down bumming chair and, and put pen to paper. But you know, there was so much in ya in terms of personal universal element. So when we say to our listeners, when you're writing a memoir, why is a stranger going to want to pick up your book and spend how many dollars on this thing that you have experienced? What is it about it that is going to appeal to them and resonate with them? And people pick up memoirs for, for many, many different reasons. The thing in here that really simmered with me was, you know, the misogyny that was Rife in the wine writing industry. Well, not just wine writing, the critics, etc., at the time when you were being sort of dragged over the coals in terms of the defamation. Can we can we first just put that into context for our listeners and then we can discuss it a little bit further from there?
6: Mm-hmm. Do you mean what happened? The inciting incident? <laughs> yes, the inciting incident. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. We need sound effects. Okay, so it was just before Christmas. My family had all gone to bed and we'd had a very festive, very merry dinner with lots of wine, of course. And I was checking email one last time. It was just before midnight. And this Google alert pops up in my inbox and says, Natalie McLean, world's best wine writer or content thief? (laughs) And my heart (laughs) dropped. I mean, it just went right through to the soles of my feet. Because as you know, Bianca, as a writer, That is the worst thing we can be accused of. So doctors lose their license for malpractice. Lawyers get disbarred for misrepresentation. Writers, we get our careers and reputations canceled for anything to do with copyright issues. So I just didn't, I just felt it all coming at me. Like the the words were burning into my retinas. And it took me a while to absorb it and to understand what is it that they're saying? What happened here? And that's how I opened the story by putting you right into the middle of it and trying to make it as visceral as I can, because this is all online where many people will say, oh, you know, just turn it off. Sticks and stones will break my bones with, you know, name calling, nasty comments. They'll never hurt you. But when you make the majority of your living online and through words, you can no more turn it off than a surgeon can operate outside the hospital this is your everything. It's your livelihood. It's how you support your family. It's who you are. It's your reputation. It's your self-worth. So I had to try to make that more tangible, more visceral for readers, especially readers who are not writers and might dismiss it as, oh yeah, the internet's mean. <laughs> Get over it. So the story unfolds from there. That's It starts there. And then I start to back up with what led up to that. And then we return midway through the book to that scene my what I call my nightmare before Christmas and then we move forward again to what happened and the resolution.
2: Yeah, so for our listeners, you know, we started in media's race, right? Yes. It's the inciting incident. But what what Natalie does is she puts us right there in the action, then we kind of go back and we get context, et cetera, et cetera, then we move forward. So she's chosen a very interesting structure and timeline in terms of the structure of the memoir, which we're going to discuss in a little bit more detail. But the thing that really stood out to me in terms of that personal universal element is not that people had a problem with the way you used the the wine reviews, just referencing the critics' initials, et cetera, et cetera. It's the way they came for you did not allow you to kind of speak for yourself, would not accept an explanation or an apology, but then how very personal it became and how so many of these misogynistic comments that were made online were about your appearance, were about your breasts, were about your hair and you as a woman to the point that someone actually threatened to rape you if you did not shut up. And I swear, the rage that I feel at that because, you know, as we are three women who run a podcast, we've had more than our fair share of these kinds of comments coming to us. What the hell do we know? We're just stupid women. We must shut up, et etc. et cetera. But just that. I think there are so many women listening right now who have experienced that at some point or another. Maybe they haven't had this online vitriol, but certainly they've had men in their companies comment on their appearance and things like that in these ways that are just, it's infuriating. It's mind-blowing, in fact. And this was only 10 years ago. So can you take us through, after you, you wrote the memoir, I'm sure you must have heard from hundreds of women that could relate to that, who were saying, "Natalie, oh my God, we may not be in the wine industry, we may not be in this industry, but boy, can we relate to this kind of behavior?" Absolutely. I mean, the the, the letters just kept flooding
6: in, like direct messages, emails, and so on. And I mean that that has just been so gratifying. I mean, it just but you know, it they were so specific. These emails and letters, like you wrote my story. You. Wouldn't believe it. We, I feel like you're my sister, and I finally, you know, we've just reunited. I don't know. I, I think though that it has to go back to the feelings because the situational specifics are different. And you know, you've touched on it a few times, Bianca. Women's anger and fury. I mean, we are taught to be nice girls, to smile, to you know, brighten up someone else's day, usually a man's, and we don't talk enough about our anger with that. We, you know, th- throughout this memoir, there's also an evolution of how I deal with my own anger. You know, all of that's tied together the witch theme, the anger, the fire, the scorn, the fury. Because up till writing this book, you know, I'd always been, I just was more of a humor writer than anything else. I, you know, would make fun of the wine industry, but in a lighthearted way. I would play nice, I'd play by the rules, and so on. And I had a lot of success with that. I, I treated my writing career like one gloriously long English class. If I kept my head down and I did good work, I'd get you know, the A grade, top marks. And actually, the world doesn't work that way. <laughs> Certainly the wine industry doesn't, and, and many other writers did not feel that way. So it was an awakening for me and a, a whole process that I went through from always trying to be a a good girl and play by the rules, to making light of even my own skills as a writer, as a woman, to at first feeling sad and depressed that all of this was happening, and then to opening up to my own anger and saying, hey, this isn't right. And there are all of these, well, they were all men, so I may as well just say that, not people. All these men are telling my story. I'm a writer, and I should be able to tell my own story. I should be able to write this last chapter.
2: Amen to that. So so we're going to get to the witch structure because I love that. And for of the memoirists out there, we have said, you know, memoir should not be something that you approach going, okay, this is when I was born. I'm taking the story in a linear way. This is what happened when I was 20. This is what happened when I was 30. And this is where I currently am. You know, there are so many different ways to structure memoir. And the way Natalie pulled in the witch theme, I thought was absolutely genius. And I want to unpack that some more. But something you've just said is something I want to touch on. So writing, a memoir like this in which you're defending yourself so much against the allegations that were made against you? You know, how are you able to do that? How are you able to tell your truth without worrying about implicating people who might want to sue, legal concerns, etc.? There are some names that you don't mention the names, you're obscuring the names. There are some men who you mentioned blatantly. And obviously, those are ones who made their comments in very public forums, in which case you are able to quote them from those public forums. For our listeners out there who are writing something similar, how do you balance the truth telling against worrying about legal repercussions down the line for writing your truth? So first up, you can't
6: worry about it at all when you are writing your early drafts. Otherwise, you're trying to have your foot on the gas pedal and on the brake at the same time. You won't get it out there. You, you won't get it down on paper, is what I should say. You have to let the story out first. So that's the first thing. Then as you get further down the road to more iterations of your drafts and it's starting to take shape and you've had a developmental edit and you've had other edits and so on, that's the point at which you can start thinking about legal ramifications. I should note, Bianca, that I had changed everybody's name. So not just family members, but also all of these men who are commenting publicly about me and then, you know, even the crude things they were saying and so on. And the lawyer went through the manuscript for the first time. He said, you know, if you change their name, you're violating their copyright. (laughs) You know, to quote them and their vile things, (laughs) vile things they said, I had to use their full names. So in the end, I, I didn't want to name anybody. Like for my family, it was like privacy. But for the trolls, it's like, let's not shed more light on these trolls. Let's not give them more attention. That's what they feed on. But in the end, I had to name them because I was quoting, whether it was online or various sources. I had to do that for copyright, but I I also came to the conclusion in the end that they deserved full credit for what they said and did.
2: Can I just Um, say the irony there in terms of the copyright? The irony is just, oh, love it, carry on. I know, right? So yeah, writing this book was like the law school
6: that I should have finished. I actually dropped out of law school. Anyway, so the next step that you always need to do is put in that sort of author's note at the front of the book that is clear- it's not in the mice type of the copyright page, but I, I can share that with you if, if that would be helpful to listeners. Okay, so this is what I said, because there's two purposes for this. One is that it's a shot over the bow for frivolous claims. You don't want people coming after you with no basis. You want them to know this has been reviewed by lawyers. And the second part is that this actually would be used in my defense if anyone were to bring a suit which has not happened. Huh. Anyway, here it goes. I wrote this book with positive intent for everyone in it, even those involved in traumatic moments. They've all made me who I am today, as flawed as that remains. Some people's names, physical characteristics, and company affiliations have been changed for privacy. Otherwise, this memoir remains a true narrative. The events and dialogue are based on my memories, conversations, journal entries, emails, texts, online posts, screenshots, and recordings. I asked family, friends, colleagues, and several lawyers to review the manuscript. The opinions in this memoir are mine alone and intended only to share my experience. I don't represent any brand company or organization mentioned. My story isn't unusual, but I hope my journey helps others who travel this way feel less alone. I raise my glass to you. So that's That's just putting it out there and up front for the reasons that I mentioned, you know, shot over the bow for frivolous claims, part of my defense should it arise. That said, that does not save you from being sued for defamation, invasion of privacy, or copyright claims if you haven't used copyright correctly in your book. That's not like a, a, you know, get out of jail card, that author's note. You still need to be very careful in how you talk about others. And so when I bring others into my story, I only bring them in to the extent that they overlap with my story. I go no further, even though many times I wanted to, with other details that really didn't tell my story or with characterizations that <laughs> would be, might be considered defamatory. I had to stick to the facts. But in the end, sticking to the facts was far more powerful. It got rid of all of the fluffy, you know, it, it got down to the, the muscle and bones of the story without all the fat. And so in the end, it was a good thing that I had to work with these restrictions that also benefited me legally.
2: Yeah. just See, this is why I can't write a memoir because I would write so-and-so who everybody agrees is a ginormous asshole said this <laughs> and this, you know, so so I would, I would really get sued. Back to the lawyer stuff. So Natalie... I know when I sign my contracts with my publishers, even though I'm writing fiction, there's always a clause that says that if I get sued, that's my problem. Pretty much it's not the publisher's problem. They are not settling lawsuits on my behalf. So when it came to the lawyers here, were these all at your cost? Were you lucky enough to know lawyers that did this for you for free? So this is all stuff that you had to do contractually yourself before this book could get published. Could you
6: take us through that? Sure. So... In the contract with my publisher, they said the wording was such that if the publisher feels the need for a legal edit, that they would get one done and pay for it. But they didn't feel the need. (laughs) Even though this book centered on a variety of legal issues and was such a personal book that involved, you know, both my (laughs) ex-husband and all of these writers online you know, you just think that's a cauldron, a bubbling cauldron, waiting for a lawyer to to put out the fire. They decided that it wasn't necessary because, ultimately, as you said, Bianca, I'm on the hook, not them. You are indemnifying them. You're responsible for their legal fees and any damages in a suit. So that can just take the wind right out of your sails, out of your lungs. So I, I knew for my own peace of mind, I could not publish this unless I had. Not just one legal read, but two. So sort of as the manuscript was evolving to the point where I thought, you know, this is close to publication to a final read of the final manuscript. And it was expensive.
2: You know, we're talking like $5,000 a read. Yeah. And, and can I just um, ask what kind of lawyer? Because this is obviously very specialized. Yes. This is not just, you know, it your, your, your cousin who's a lawyer down the road. Like, What <laughs> kind of lawyers are we talking about here? those who specialize
6: either in entertainment law, but even more specifically than that, I went with a lawyer who specialized in the publishing world. He, he was a lawyer in the publishing world who only reads book manuscripts for three things, copyright, defamation, and invasion of privacy. And I'd highly recommend him, if anyone wants to get in touch after the show, feel free to reach out to me. It was worth all the money because it was It was peace of mind. But also, I learned a lot. Like, you know, uh, going through his comments, going through the manuscript, made the manuscript better. My editor at the publisher was afraid that the lawyers were going to ruin it. (laughs) They were going to take all the juicy bits out, neuter the whole manuscript. But in the end, I think it made it stronger for the reasons we've discussed. But also, it, it really made me weigh every word. And you need to do that in any book. You need to be right in there, in the detail, in the minutia. As as much as we do a line edit, we need to do this sort of legal edit when we're dealing with issues like this, and especially in memoir, because you have to say, am I really behind that sentence? It might feel good to say it, and I want to say it, but am I willing to defend it in court? And I know that sounds like a really cautious way to write, but you're not writing that way. The writing is largely done. Now you're in the editing mode. And your every sentence has to pass that test.
2: Yeah. And while we're talking about the writing, you know, we've, we focused so much during this interview on the legal implications, because this is something we get a ton of questions on the podcast and you were the perfect person to, to ask about this. But I do want our listeners to know that Wine Witch on Fire is beautifully written. It is excellent on the sentence level. It evokes emotion. It evokes anger. It gets you on board with, you know, Natalie, as the protagonist, I I like to talk about memoir as, as a protagonist rather than saying getting on board with you, Natalie, per se. It was just the writing was wonderful. So let's talk a bit about that now as well, because what I want to pick your brain about as well is the witch theme. And how you use that to your benefit in terms of the structure of the novel. We've got section names, we've got chapter names, that which theme is stitched carefully through the entire thing. And, you know, the book begins with a mob who's coming for Natalie. Now, back 400 years ago, this mob would have been a mob of men with pitchforks coming to Natalie's house to burn it down. In this day and age, it's a mob of men who are coming on social media, on Twitter, on blog posts, etc., so was it from the beginning that you saw that witch theme and you wanted to sort of use it as as a hook, as a theme throughout? I know you say when you appear on the Canadian show, The Social, you decide to start dressing as a wine witch for that Halloween special. Is that when it came in? Take us a bit through the intentionality of choosing that theme. Sure. So I always say you
6: might think from the title, Wine Witch on Fire, this is about an angry woman who drinks a lot of wine and owns a lot of cats, but it's not.
2: (laughs) And I would read that memoir. I just want anyone out there to know, I would read the (laughs) shit out of that memoir. But anyway, carry on, Natalie. (laughs)
6: So, witches resonate with me because their strength comes from within, not from external validation. It's a real release. You know, my favorite childhood stories were always about witches. So, the good and the bad. Wizard of Oz, you know, the battling duo of Glinda the Good Witch and the Wicked Witch of the West, who's always goes unnamed. But I was entranced with those opposing forces that I saw in myself. You know, I even loved the straight up badass white witch of Narnia. You know, I I was cackling alongside her when she canceled Christmas and froze Narnia. It was a very satisfying outlet for, a, you know, a little goody Miss Two-Shoes. Of course, you know, I've come around since then to realize that certain stereotypes of women can be damaging, including the word witch. And that's why I hesitated use it. One of many reasons I hesitated using the word witch in the title and as a theme throughout the book. But now, you know, I... I believe a witch is a wise woman who's been through the fire of life, come out on the other end, stronger, wiser, fiercer. So I had to get over my notions of what a witch was first. But then, you know, when did I start thinking about this for the book? So during the online mobbing, there were lots of comments about pitchforks and witch hunts and so on. But I couldn't even remember those comments until years later when I went back through the posts and the screenshots and at first I was very wary of the metaphor because I did not want to equate my experience with the horrors that women faced in the 17th and 18th centuries but you know over time their stories really did rekindle with me a desire to call out sexism and misogyny in a in a modern sense and you know the methods are more subtle I think today but the results can feel as devastating So during my no good, terrible, very bad vintage, I did feel like a witch in all the worst ways. You know, outcast, despised, scorned, hunted. And even the stories of so-called witches, like in literature, inspired me. You know, I was thinking back to all of these stories that I loved as a child. You know, Hester Prynne was forced to wear the scarlet letter A on her chest. And she embroidered it ornately with gold thread and I think made something creative out of her shame. And she transformed that badge of humiliation into her own emblem of individuality, her way of taking back the story. So all of these themes were bubbling in in my own cauldron. And I think for many of us today, you know, online can be so amorphous, like what is it? But Google's search algorithm is our modern scarlet letter A, especially for women. If there's anything negative about you online, it'll be on the first page of results, regardless of when it happened, or whether it's been fact-checked, doesn't matter. And we all wear that A on our virtual chest. So in the end, I I really came around to, you know, weaving this thread of the witch through the story, the old metaphor, to illuminate a new story, and then also to turn it around and to see those old stories about women as witches in a new light. So that's the sort of overview, but, you know, carrying through the metaphor through the book is another thing.
2: (laughs) Is that something... That comes with layering. So for example, what I do when I am writing, I'll focus on one note of my character. Let's say their misbelief that they are unlovable. And I'll focus on that for a lot of time. And then there'll be something else about their character. Like for example, they feel very insecure about their body image. And I'm not able to generally write those two notes at the same time. But when I come back with editing, I'll be like, look out for where the body dysmorphia or the you know self-image is a problem and where you can factor that in. And so I'm able to weave that in during the editorial process later on. So is that something that you were also very conscious of when editing, saying, oh, wow, I didn't see this the first time around, but this is something that really can be compared to X, Y, and Z when it comes to witches? Exactly.
6: So I had a, a stockpile of little witch stories. And then when you have those sort of in the back of your mind, they become readily apparent as you're reading your manuscript for the 98th time where they might fit without being heavy handed, without milking the metaphor. You know, so once I decided to go with the witch theme, I really had to go all in. Otherwise it would come off as superficial or disrespectful to the women who were persecuted. So it was this balance of, okay, you need to go deep, but you can't overdo it. And so it's that fine, fine line. So, you know, leaning into that metaphor. Was, I think, more fruitful for the writing itself. It was a way of showing, not telling. So, for example, when I started responding to the comments, the defamatory comments and others online, I would get flaming responses from the trolls. And then when I backed off and didn't post, they'd accuse me of running away from the issue. So, that reminded me of the story of one way to tell if a woman was a witch in colonial Salem was to strip her down to her undergarments, bind her, and throw her into a lake. Since witches rejected the sacrament of baptism, the water would reject her and make her float. An innocent person would sink to the bottom, according to this logic. So you'd either sink and drown or float and get dragged to the stake and be burned. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Sounds like the forerunner to social media. So trying to weave the two of them together like that. But I had like, so the story, like I had a file of stories of all of these things about witches... And you know, when I started going back to the passage of, I can't win here, I'm trying to respond. And then when I think that that's just fueling their fire, I don't respond. Ugh, I can't win that way either. So you weave in these small snippets that are firmly rooted in the metaphor. They serve kind of as a touch point for the reader that shows up in new and interesting ways, I think, through the manuscript. But they also allow me to share more satisfying reflections as well as
2: the vulnerability and surprise and and fear. Yeah, you did that so incredibly well. And there were so many moments where I was like, you know, there are times that it feels like we've come so far. And there's times that it feels like we haven't Even taking that first step, when you compare Mm -hmm. like the modern day context to things that you're comparing happened to however many years ago, it's, you know, and and that was the touchstone for me. Each time we brought it back, brought it back, brought it back. And it it was not overdone. It was not heavy handed. It was just perfect. I loved as well the chapter headings. So for our listeners, Ah. Natalie went between sort of witch themed chapter headings and also wine themed. So we have things like Game of Crones. A Marriage of True Vines, Good Witch Hunting, Tempest in a Wine Glass. So, so really, really creative and interesting there as well. Natalie, we passed our time. I have so many other questions, but unfortunately, we are not going to get to them. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Tell them about your newsletter. Tell them a bit more about where all you are.
6: Thank you, Bianca. So you can find me at nataliemaclean.com That's easy to misspell, so if you want to try winewitchonfire.com, you'll find everything about the book, and that just redirects to my website. For listeners who might also be interested in how I put together a book club guide with not only discussion questions about the book, but also tips on organizing your own informal wine tasting. I have interesting themes there from sort of a gathering of your your own personal coven to the perfect wine tasting for a divorce party. (laughs) You can go to winewitchonfire.com forward slash guide. So feel free to borrow whatever is helpful there. As you mentioned, Bianca, I also host the podcast Unreserved Wine Talk. And I really try to interview people who are weird and wonderful in the world of wine and can tell stories. We're not comparing Hungarian to American oak or anything like that. My newsletter is at nataliemaclean.com. I have free mobile apps that will scan the barcodes, front labels of bottles and bring up my wine reviews. You can find it all there at either nataliemaclean.com or winewitchonfire.com.
2: Amazing, Natalie. Thank you. And Natalie does have two other books out before this one. Can you quickly tell our listeners about those? Sure. These are far more lightheaded.
6: lightheaded. (laughs) Well, they are lightheaded and lighthearted. The first is red, white, and drunk all over. A wine-soaked journey from grape to glass. As you can see, I do put the entire book in the title and subtitle. And the second one is Unquenchable, a tipsy search for the world's best bargain wines. So there are just adventure stories. I work a day in the life as a sommelier so that you know how to order from a restaurant list. I work the harvest so you know how wine is made. They're all based on stories so that you can learn about
2: wine in a more fun, entertaining way. Amazing. We're going to link to all of these on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, if you buy the books there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast. Natalie, thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you.
6: Bianca, thank you. Thank you for inviting me here to share this story, but also thank you again for what you do for the the literary community. This podcast is at the top of my playlist. I love the discussion, the tips I get every week. Thank you for continuing to do that. Welcome everyone
1: to another bonus Q&A episode. We will start with the very first question,
13: and then Carly, will you answer that for us? Hi, I self-published a YA fantasy in 2013. I wasn't able to market it or get behind it as I would have liked to because of family expectations and certain circumstances that preceded the book. In the last 10 years, I have written other books, in particular MG novels that are out uh, to agents and some false that are out to agents right now as well. Um, But I have worked on this story the last 10 years improving it and working on it because I couldn't let it go and now it is I'm finished with it but it is completely different to what it was in the self-published version it has the same characters and it follows a plot line but it's very very different from the book that I self-published I want to query this book now to agents and I'm wondering if it has a shot and I want to know if there's a taboo attached to it and how should I approach it in my query letter? And how should I go about it in the industry? Thank you so much.
0: All right. I think we were missing a key piece of information here, which is have you taken it down off the internet? I wasn't really clear on that because it can't exist on the internet while you are querying it, especially since it was from 2013. So I have a feeling that's 10 years ago at this point. So I have a feeling you've probably taken it down, which is good. I definitely think agents are going to have a lot of questions. It. I agree with you, though. It is ultimately a very different book. So I I don't think there's a problem. Like, I don't think there's any red flags. I think it's just pitch the best book that you can pitch. And if you can pitch it well and, you know, give agents the information that they need and, you know, not hold back any information, I think it's fine. Agents are going to have questions. It might be harder than you think. But guess what? All of publishing is harder than everybody thinks.
1: So true. Okay, next question, and I'll answer that
0: hi
3: ladies thank you for doing this my question is about self-publishing back in 2016 after a very long and unintended hiatus i started writing again and self-published two novels admittedly without doing much research Uh, needless to say i only sold maybe 100 copies
8: mainly to family and friends i've noticed that query tracker asks if you self-published and i never know how to answer that question It's not that I'm not proud of those books, but
3: I am a different, more experienced writer now and much more educated and prepared to pursue traditional publishing with different projects. So how do I handle this question when someone wants a yes or no answer uh, since I've had very little success with self-publishing?
1: Is it even worth mentioning? Thanks again. Like if we look at the facts, the fact is you have self-published. So of course you were a different person back then. Um, Of course you've grown so much. You've learned so much. And that's really important. And people will know that because of the time that has passed. But if you are at being asked in a straight up yes or no way, have you self-published, then the answer is yes. And I personally think it's better to be honest about it. There is an ethical consideration That's really important to keep in mind whenever you're starting out a new relationship. And that is if someone is asking you a question like this, it's better to tell the truth. And if it makes you feel more comfortable, you can include a little line in your query letter in the author paragraph, letting them know that your self-published novels came out back when you were maybe treating writing as a hobby, right? And that now your goal is to be a career author. And so you're a different person. So you can include something like that. But it's that's a positive, but also realistic way to frame it. Yeah, that's what I would do. That's my advice.
0: All right. Thanks, Cece. Let's go to the next question.
10: Hello. I would like to know what the difference is between a mystery and a thriller. Um, some are pretty obvious, but some not so much. Like In a Dark, Dark Wood by Ruth Ware is a mystery or is it considered a thriller? I have written a book said in the woods that is similar-ish to that book. Um... And I'm not sure whether I should call it a mystery or a thriller. So any help you could give me in defining these genres would be amazing. Thank you so much and thank you for all you do.
0: All right, so this was a great reminder for me to remind myself of the differences between mysteries and thrillers in a Dark Dark Wood. What a great, great book. In my opinion, it's a thriller. And I want to just, you know, for the listeners, I think this is a great question to explain to you guys the difference between mysteries and thrillers. So I, as a reference, I use Book Riot. Book Riot's a great website, but they had an article about the difference between mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. So what they say is, mystery follows a detective while they solve a crime, and we discover the clues along with the protagonist. They are not in danger. A thriller Takes these elements of mystery and adds danger to the protagonist who may or may not be the one solving the mystery. So there you go. Thrillers include a protagonist in danger, which I think is a great way to think about it. And that article also had suspense and they said suspense is when the reader knows more than the protagonist. So there you go. There's some uh, useful information for everybody. I love that question because
1: now I also got
0: a refresher. Hi, I'm wondering if it's necessary to include a content warning for
10: child abuse and suicide in my query. Letter, if these do not appear in the pages sent with the query, and if not necessary, how do I address it if asked for more pages? I love the podcast. Thanks for all you do for emerging writers.
1: So for this one, my personal view on content notes is that they're always appreciated. So yes, I would include that at the end of your query letter. You can also add a little line saying that while these content notes apply to your manuscript, these things do not appear. In the sample pages if that's something that would make you feel more comfortable
0: all right let's move to the next question
1: hi there my name is myra and i'm working on a book proposal for my narrative nonfiction book i have a question about the querying process i noticed that a lot of literary agents ask for the first 10 pages of your proposal directly within the email and I wondered why that is, as the sample chapters typically appear near the end of the proposal. Is that intentional as they just want to get a flavor for the proposal? Or should I be trying to sneak in my sample chapters within those first 10 pages? Thank you so much for your podcast. I really enjoy it. And I'm um, so grateful for everything that you do for the author community. Ooh, this is, a, this is a really interesting
0: one. You know, I've been reading queries and answering these questions for a long time, and I really had to put myself in your shoes to think about what would be the logical thing to do here. So, yeah, I, I really do think the agent is asking for the sample, right? Like, obviously, the proposal is a huge piece of this, but... I think what I would do is I would try to be a little bit sneaky here, if I'm not going to lie. What I would do is try to kind of do a Cole's Notes, like a Cliff's Notes, like try to condense things to kind of meet the page requirement that they're asking for and try to make sure that you include a little bit of maybe potentially the overview, the chapter summaries, a marketing section and some writing sample. I would try to be a little sneaky here because, yes, I do think what they want is the writing sample, but... You're doing your best service by selling the book by including some of those proposal elements.
1: I love me
5: some sneaky advice. Okay, next question. Hi there. I'm a working mom. So grateful for the MFA that you're giving me in my car on a daily basis. Wondering if I should mention to an agent that I'm querying with a new manuscript that they had requested a full manuscript from me in the past. Or even if we'd had some correspondence about it, trying to get some sort of um, rapport reestablished, if there was any in the past. Wondering if you think that would be helpful. Thanks so much.
1: This is such a nice note. I would include it.
5: Yes, I've actually
1: had that happen to me. I have a client whose first work I rejected after reading the full. And when she queried me again years later with her new work, She mentioned this rejection in the past, and it only made me feel more positive about my chances of liking her work, since I would not have requested the full if I didn't feel like there was true potential. Ultimately, it's up to you. This isn't a situation where ethically you should mention it. So it's whatever your comfort level is. But I see it as a positive thing because if I've enjoyed your work before, then I might enjoy it again. And there's so many reasons why we pass on a full. It could be something like, unfortunately, I don't think the market is looking for this right now. It could be something that has nothing to do with your talent is what I'm saying. So so I would. I think that's a positive and congratulations. Thank you so much, Cece. Let's go to the next one.
14: Hi, ladies. Thanks for everything you do on the podcast. I am a querying author and I have a question for you. I recently got a polite rejection from an agent who said, I like your writing, but unfortunately I found editors super picky in the women's fiction market and I'm not confident I know how to position a plot like this for success. I'm also uh, recently involved in an online pitch event that included agents and editors and I got um, a comment from an editor saying that they would be interested in seeing uh, my book once it's ready to go out on submission. So my question is wondering if it is appropriate to contact the agent who passed and let her know that I have an interest from an agent, or if that's not appropriate and that ship has sailed and really I should just include that information in my query letter moving forward. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time.
13: Hmm.
0: Okay. All right. So I'm a big fan of letting ship sail. I'm a huge fan of letting ship sail because I feel like things happen when they're meant to happen. However, like woo woo, you want to read into that. I mean, I think ultimately you need an agent that is going to fight for you. So even though there is new information that they might not have had, would that have changed their outcome of their answer? potentially not, you know, the only reason I would say that maybe you would want to update them on that information is if it's the agent of your dreams and like you, you you can't sleep at night without like sending this bit of information. It does come off a bit like, are you sure you're confident in your decision? Which like agents never really like to be, question because like we are confident in our decision that's why we made the decision so i i do think that's tricky it's also like not an offer from an editor it's just like hey this editor said that they would potentially be interested in so as i said i'm a huge fan of of letting the ship sail unfortunately because i think you just you have to really always be you know moving forward in this business we cannot be looking back so yeah that would be my advice thank you carly off
2: to the next question hi my name is adri brookner And my question stems from the recent podcast episode, which I enjoyed so much, I listened to it twice. Carly said, and I quote, the corners women's narratives paint themselves into in
10: terms of emotionality. Could you elaborate on that? I want to make sure that I avoid
0: any of those pitfalls in my work in progress.
1: Thank you. Okay. Since this one was directed at you, I will step aside so you can answer. All right. So...
0: Yes, I, I love talking about this. Um, and if anybody wants a reference point on Instagram, I did a post about internal and external conflict. I posted that on September thirteenth. If you want to scroll back through my Instagram at Carly Waters with two T's and check it out. So I really think one of the main issues with contemporary women's fiction and why certain projects don't sell or or kind of get agents is it's so focused on the internal, right, which is I'm upset that my marriage is falling apart or, you know, this friendship trouble is really driving me crazy. Like all these very internal things about major issues that are going on in their life, but all of it is internal. So we really have to, women's fiction that is successful has an external plot element, which is something physically is happening. There is something kind of an outside force that is getting in the way of the marriage issues or the friendship issues or the career issues. So It's really important that we don't just focus on the emotionality in women's fiction, that we have external plot points, meaning roadblocks, things that get in the way of your character actually achieving what they need to achieve. So for an example, you know, I use in this Instagram post is, you know, an example of the You know, internal versus external, for example, a character who is fiercely independent, that is an internal trait, but is forced to rely on someone else to get what they want, which is an external thing. So again, a lot of women's fiction has great internal conflict. Always really have to make sure we're amping up the external conflict. Excellent
1: advice. Okay, next question. Hello,
10: can you market a standalone with series potential as young adult if the planned sequels to the first book would be new adult? I ask based on your discussion in our previous bonus episodes about the fact that new adult isn't really a serviceable category yet like young adult is? Or is it better to query the book's genre as more representative of the series as a whole? For example, say that in a romance fantasy book, the protagonist starts at 19 years old with fade to black romance, and note that there may be heavy themes of mental illness
0: and emotional abuse. Thank you. All right. Thank you for this one. Wow. Yeah, this is tricky. I mean, I think we've talked at length, which you know about new adult and whether it is or isn't a category. I personally am also a huge fan of just focusing on what you have in front of you. And if what you have in front of you is a YA manuscript, really be focusing on this as a YA manuscript. So even if there is planned sequels, series potential, you know, that's fine. I wouldn't be using the words new adult in your pitch letter at all, or your query letter at all, if you are pitching a YA novel as the, you know, singular first book. There's been a lot of conversations lately. I was just reading Publishers Weekly magazine about YA starting to age up which is making like middle grade age up. And so I think there's a natural aging up that's happening in YA to cover the fact that new adult doesn't like new adult doesn't really exist as a category. So I think you're really safe in the YA category right now and and check out that article in Publishers Weekly if you're interested.
1: All right. That's it for today. Thank you everyone for sending in your questions. If you would like to send in your question as well, a fun challenge is trying to do it within the time limit. Not because the time limit is unreasonable, but because you too may have CC disease and talk too much. So good luck. Check out our website.
2: We look forward to hearing from you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's
0: the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, the Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues. But for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. Is for career-driven writers aspiring and published who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books there are over 20 worksheets downloads and plug and play templates for editing querying, and marketing you get lifetime access for the entire six module course as soon as you purchase as new content gets added you have access to that as well don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about and you guys get a discount so at checkout carlywaters.com course Use code POD15, that's code POD15, when you check out for 15% off. That's CarlaWaters.com slash course. Use code POD15, that's code POD15, when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or... The interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8pm via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.